with us last week. I started our study in the book of Colossians and uh, continuing our study here through it. Now, I will say this. A lot of times when you get into one of these epistles and it starts getting into a lot of theology, it's really easy for our minds to start tuning out. It's easy for us to follow along when Jesus is healing blind people and David is killing Goliath. But when you start getting into theology, it's very easy just to all of a sudden these words just start to mean nothing and they're big words that we normally don't use. I'm willing to bet most of you have not used the words like reconciliation this week or redeemed or things along that type of line. But it's important to understand what this stuff means. So as we go through this, what we're going to do is just break this down and we're going to look at these words and see what the Lord has to say. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we talked about the key thing the key thing in the book of Colossians is it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Everything we do and everything we say, it's all about Christ. He is the key of everything we do. Well, this continues here in the book of Colossians. So without much further ado, let's go into this. Colossians 1, verse 12. It says, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love." in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a lot of words in there that, like I said, you kind of look at this and you start looking at qualified, delivered, conveyed, redemption. What does it all mean? Well, what's just simple and let's break this down. Look at verse 12. We're giving thanks. Why are we giving thanks? We're giving thanks because God has done four things. So we're giving thanks first off. and He's done four things. The first thing He's done is verse 12. He's qualified us. Now, for you good old King Jamesers out there, you have something that says to the fact of made us meet to. Kind of an interesting little phrase there. But the point is that he qualified us. Because what do we get out of this qualification? We are now God's children. So that's the first thing we give thanks for, is you're a child of God. I think we take that for granted a lot of times. That we are considered a child of God, and as a child of God, verse 12, we got a great inheritance coming. An absolutely wonderful inheritance. Now, how did I become a child of God? Because I was qualified to do it. Now, I'm not qualified by what I did. I'm qualified by what He did. So the first reason we give thanks to God is He has qualified you and I to become children of God. Well, what's the next thing He does? He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Verse 13. He's delivered us. He's taken us out of sin and given us a new life. We've been delivered. What's the third thing that he's done? Conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Conveyed means transferred. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. And what it means is an immediate change of residence. Immediate. So when it says we've been conveyed or transferred into the kingdom of the Son of his love, we immediately have been placed in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you guys. I absolutely hate moving hate moving. It is this long, drawn-out process. When Dawn and I moved into our new house probably three years ago, we moved, it seemed like, for months. You take a load over here, you take a load over there, and then, you know, the funny thing is, after we moved out of that house, Mike and Melissa Walther, if you remember them, moved into the house. And I needed to help Mike move into that old house, and then I helped Mike move out of that old house. But the funny part about it was, when we were moving Mike out this has been now two years after Dawn and I lived there. I found stuff we left there. They're like, what is this? And it's like, oh, that's ours. Oh, that's ours. Way back in the bottom of the closet type thing. 
Moving is a long, drawn-out process. Anybody that's ever moved, you know that. So when you see this phrase right here, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son, immediate transfer of residence. Imagine moving where just at the snap of your finger, everything is now moved from point A to point B. No hauling, no straps, no trucks, no nothing. The point of this is that when you become a child of God, because you're qualified, and you've been delivered from the power of darkness, from sin, you are immediately now part of the kingdom of God. Immediately. Now, I don't know why people don't like this immediate thing. I've run into a lot of people that like to do this stage thing of salvation. Are you saved? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I am. I'm working at it. Well, wait a second. You're either saved or you're not. Your residence is either in the kingdom of God or it's not. And the whole point is that this word says that God immediately transfers me out of hell into heaven. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Once again, how many times have you heard us say this? That's why he could say, it is finished. The move is over. It's not mostly done. It's not probably done. It's not halfway done. It is finished. And so therefore I have immediate residence now in the kingdom. And how do I have this? Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, that word literally means ransom. There was a ransom owed for you. Now, we couldn't pay the ransom. There's no thing we could have done for it. How am I supposed to take care of sin? How am I supposed to take care of this problem? This is the thing that we talked about a lot over Easter, is this idea of we owe this huge debt, this huge penalty of sin. How are we supposed to take care of it? The answer is we couldn't. Someone else had to pay the price for us. And that price that had to be paid had to be the perfect sacrifice. Not to repeat everything that we went over for excellent Wednesday or Easter, but Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He paid the ransom. See, Satan always had this over our heads. James Irvin sinned. That sin has to be paid for. Satan's right on that. There's no way around that. I have sinned and that sin has to be paid for. I deserve hell. So who's going to pay for that sin? I can't pay for it. I can't work my way out of hell into heaven. I can't sacrifice enough animals to get me there. Somebody has to pay this ransom. And Jesus Christ is the one that paid the ransom. He paid it how? Through his blood. So now I am redeemed. That's what it means. So when you look at this passage here, you're really thanking God, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father for four things. First off, he's qualified. You are now a child of God. Now, don't ever forget that. Because here's the thing. As a child of God, two thoughts come to my mind. First off, number one, there's a lot of people in the world that deal with, um, I guess the popular term is self-esteem issues. You know, who am I? And, you know, what difference does it make? No one cares about me. Oh, whatever. You're a child of God. Now, I'm not saying be prideful about that because Jesus took care of it for you, but don't ever get down. You're a child of God. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. That's enough to get you through the day. Number two, as a child of God, there are certain rules and stipulations, dare I say, that are asked of you as a child of God. We're just starting to run into this with Elias, the oldest. He's five years old. We go someplace, and he'll be around other kids, and they do something. So he goes and does himself. And we say, Elias, don't do that. Well, his first thing is, well, they're doing it. Well, they have horrible parents. That's why. You have great parents. 
point is, you have different rules and stipulations, and so therefore you need to follow those different rules and stipulations because you are a child of mine. Same thing with the child of God. Sometimes as a child of God, we look longingly into the world. Oh, man, remember when we could do that? Oh, man, remember? Remember how much fun that used to be? And here's the thing. As a child of God, you have a different set of parents because there's only two sets of parents in the world. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. I mean, that's what the Bible says. You're either one or the other. There is no unchild children. You're one or the other. And so therefore, sometimes we look at the children of the world and we think, oh, I long for that. What are we longing for? Longing for sin? Well, not longing for sin, but look at what they can do. There's all these rules and regulations in Christianity. Here's the beautiful thing. I remember when I first got saved, there was a lot of baggage I brought into my walk with Christ. And I can remember distinctly saying, well, I'm never letting go of this. Never letting go of this. And, and I remember at that time, um, I had a, a friend that I remember her telling me, okay, in time, you'll just want to let go of it. It's like, no. And you know what? In time, I wanted to let go of it. See, when someone gets saved, so often we say, okay, now that you're saved, you're going to do this, 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 and this. What I've noticed is, is once you get saved and you go deeper in your walk with Christ, those things you just want to let go of, you no longer want it. It brings you down. It tears you down. You no longer desire it. You no longer want it. Why? Because as a child of God, you realize that's not what my father would want. And I want my father to be happy. I want to please my father. And so therefore, that's what we do. So he's qualified us. We have an inheritance. He's delivered us. He's changed our residence. And now we have redemption. Those are four things to be thankful for. Now, how in the world can Christ do that? Well, the answer is actually found... In verses uh, 15 through uh, 18 here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. How can Jesus do this? The answer is found in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Christ is everything. See, this is the purpose of the book of Colossians. Christ is everything. When you have Jesus first in your life, everything else pales in comparison. Isn't it amazing the things that we get worked up about? We get worked up about things going on in the world. We get worked up about politics. We get worked up about this or that. Verse 17, it's all about Christ. We get worked up about that big day tomorrow at work, or what's my boss going to do? What's my boss going to say? we got Jesus. What else is there to worry about? Or maybe you get worked up about bills. I don't have the job. Or what about my kids? They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's all about Jesus. Verse 17. Do we believe this verse? He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. If Christ comes before all things... That means there's never a reason for me to let worry, fear, or anxiety get the best of me because Christ is before it. He's going to take care of it. Now, sometimes I make some pretty stupid choices. Is Christ in that? He still loves me. That's not what he wants me to do. See, a lot of times in this world I have people come up to me and say, okay, if God is a God of love, how could he allow this to happen? Why did he do this? I'll tell you guys, there's a lot of things in this world that happens that God does not want to happen. 
But you know what? Even in the middle of the storm, the Lord is still there and His peace and His love is still there. He is before all things and in Him all things consist. I encourage you, if you're getting worked up about something, be it spiritual, be it emotional, be it physical, is Jesus number one? If He's number one, then He has all things. We don't need to worry about it. And because He has all things, we have two points about this. Jump back to verses 15 and 16. Because Christ can do this, He's also got creation. See, verses 15 and 16, He... Created it. Everything. The visible, the invisible. Look at the last part of verse 16. All things are created through him and for him. He's got it under control. See, now there's a little phrase in there we have to talk about, though. Where it says in verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Some cults have taken that verse and twisted it to make it sound like Jesus is the first created being. That's not what that's saying at all. That phrase, actually the firstborn over all creation, if you go back and look at the different ways that phrase is used, especially in the Old Testament, it means superiority. What it's really saying there in verse 15 is Christ is superior to all of creation. Why is Christ superior to all creation? Because he created it. So therefore, he is over it all. He's over the visible things of this world, the trees, the plants, the whatever. He's over the invisible things of this world the principalities, dominions, and powers. He's over that spiritual side of life that we don't see. He's over all of it. And then he goes one step further in verse 18. He's over the church. He is the head of the body over the church. You know how many churches around today don't have Christ as the head of it? Boy, it's a sad state. The state of the church in America is really in a sad state because we've got our focus off of Christ. This is why the book of Colossians is written, to remind us it's all Jesus. That's everything we do. It's great to get together and have food, fun, and fellowship. It's great to get together and sing songs. But unless the center of what we do is Christ, what is the purpose and point of it? In Him all things consist, as it says in verse 17. Now we have to stop real quick and ask ourselves a question. That word preeminence at the end of verse 18 really catches my eye. I think it's important to stop and say, okay, is Christ number one in your life? Because if he's not number one in your life, what is number one in your life? Your own desires? Your own passions? Because he needs to be number one. A lot of the times when I see people come into the office and they're having a difficult time in life, the world's getting the best of them. Very simply put, a lot of times Christ isn't number one in their life. I know for me, if I find myself getting off track, why am I getting off track? Because I'm not letting Christ have the preeminence. How many times have you heard us say this out here? Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. And what do we say? If you put God first, everything else falls into place. You know how hard it is to put God first? Boy, that's difficult to do. Because there's all these things that steal your time and attention. There's always more work to be done. There's always more house cleaning. There's always more kids to take care of. There's always something on TV or something else to read. There's always something else. And here's the problem with God. God doesn't like to shout. He's not going to force you. He's not going to, as you try to turn the TV on, he turns it off. He's not going to do that. Because he says, I want you in your own free will to make time for me. Make me be the preeminence. Because if I'm not number one, What is number one? And you have to stop and say, what is number one in your life right now? Is it Christ? 
Because look at everything He's done for us. We give thanks. He's qualified us. He's delivered us. He's transferred us to the kingdom. He's redeemed us. He's created the invisible world. He's created the visible world. He's the head of the church. He's everything. He's absolutely everything. To try to live a life without Jesus is, is futile. So, why? Why is all this going on? Well, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. See, it makes God the Father happy. It pleases Him that Jesus is God. See, all the fullness should dwell. Christ is fully God. That word for fullness literally means overflowing cup. Jesus is so much God, it's just overflowing. Now, why is this important? Well, 2,000 years ago it was important because there was this group called the Gnostics that were going around saying Jesus wasn't God. He had the Spirit of God on him, but Jesus was just a human that God used. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Well, you know what? 2,000 years later, you have Jehovah Witnesses, you have Mormons to take away the deity of Christ. See, this is so important to understand in verse 19. Jesus is fully God. When you look at the attributes and traits of God, and let's throw a few... Uh, uh, 25 cent words out here. There's the omnipresence of God. He's all placed at once. There's the omniscience of God. He's all knowing. And there's the omnipotence of God. He's all powerful. Those are the three omnis that describe God. Well, Jesus has those same three. He's all knowing, all powerful. And he's with us everywhere we go. He's fullness of God. Now, you may know this. But I guarantee you're going to run into somebody who doesn't know this. I guarantee you're going to run into a group sometime that's going to try to tell you something different. Do we know our Bible to know this? Do we know that Colossians 1.19 says the fullness of God dwells in Jesus? That is important for us to know. And because He is fully God, now what can He do? Verse 20, And by Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in the earth, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Oh, that's a good verse. That is a great verse. Reconcile. Now, that's a word we don't use too much. But the only time I ever used the word reconcile was I was in college and taking accounting classes. We had to do bank reconciliations. But reconcile is not a word that I'm assuming that most of you use in your everyday life. What does it mean to reconcile? Reconcile means that you completely solve the argument, the problem. Now, this is a fascinating word here for reconcile because this word reconcile is used all over the place in the New Testament. But this word right here in verse 20 is the strongest of all the words. It means that Christ reconciled us. That means he completely, 100% brought peace and unity between us and God the Father. He completely took care of sin. Completely took care of sin. And so therefore that sin issue is out the window. Now how is it completely reconciled? If you look at verse 20, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Isn't it all about Christ and Christ crucified? But we've got off that point. It's all about the cross. Everything we do centers around that cross. That Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and then three days later the tomb was empty. That is what spurs you on in life. I don't care what you are facing this morning. I don't care what problems you brought in. The only thing that matters in your life is Christ and the cross. Because when you have Christ and the cross first, everything else starts to dissipate. Now you may say, you don't know what I'm bringing in. You don't know the baggage. You don't know the pain. You don't know the hurt. I don't. But nothing compares to Christ. 
Now, once again, you either believe that or you don't. I can't make you believe that. Now, if you don't believe that, you're going to have a lot of rough times in life because you're going to base your life off of external circumstances. Work went good, so life is good. Got a good report from the doctor, so life is good. My kids are making good choices. Life is good. Okay, let's say work doesn't go good. Let's say the kids make bad choices. And let's also say you get a bad report from the doctor. Life is bad? Well, didn't Jesus say in John 10.10, I have come to give you life and to give you life more abundantly? See, if you have Christ first, there's life. And life is good because of Jesus. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes says there's also times to mourn and there's times to weep. There's sadness in life. There's a lot of sadness. But once you get through that sadness, and there'll be periods and seasons of it, it always comes down to Christ. I mean, it comes down to that verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Do you have peace in your life right now? If you don't have peace in your life, I ask you at the end of verse 20, do you have the blood of the cross? Because if there's no peace... What is getting you through? I call that roller coaster Christianity, where you have the great highs of life followed by the lows, and you go up and you go down, you go up and you go down. There should be a solid foundation of Jesus that gets us through. Once again, it doesn't mean you like everything, it doesn't mean you want everything, but it's through Him. We have been reconciled, completely taken care of. Unity, peace with Christ. Why? Because it goes back to verses 12 through 14. We are qualified, delivered, transferred, and redeemed. What happens next? Verse 21, And you who once were alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in this sight. Now, I love verse 22. I like it when God compliments me. I am holy and blameless. Now, that's pretty good. Now, why am I holy and blameless? I'm holy and blameless because, verse 21 and 22, I've been reconciled. Peace has been made. Unity is there. Because of what Christ did on the cross, I'm now holy and blameless. That word holy, verse 22, that carries the connotation of being a saint. See, the problem is, in, in 21st century church, when we use the word saint, we think of these upper, upper people that are so much better than anybody else. That's not what the word saint means. Saint just means set apart. You're saints. I'm a saint. We've been set apart by God for God's purposes. It comes from a Greek word, hagios, that just means set apart. You're a saint. I'm a saint. Isn't that a great thing? I don't feel very saint-like sometimes. Sometimes you guys don't look very saint-like. But the point is, we are saints, blameless. Now, how is this all possible? We're done because of verse 22, death. Jesus died for me to be holy and blameless. Not to repeat last week, but I threw out some little survey results. 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. Of that, 52% of Americans think that other religions can get to heaven. 37% of those Christians believe that Jesus is not the only way. Now, there's some major problems with those figures. Major problems with those numbers. Because if you call yourself a Christian, you have to come to the conclusion that it's only through the death of Christ that I can be made right. It's the only way. 
remember years ago I was asked to do a funeral. Toughest funerals to do are the ones where first off where you never met them. Very difficult to do. Number two, when you meet them, they probably weren't saved. That's tough. I was asked to do this funeral for this guy. Never met him. Sat down with the family. And the first question I always ask is, so, you know, was, was he saved? And he said, well, never really was a God-fearing man, but he believed if you just followed the Ten Commandments, you'd be okay. Now, there's some truth to that. Following the Ten Commandments is a good. But following the Ten Commandments doesn't save you. And I thought, oh, what am I going to say? And it was one of those where I always like to meet the family before I do a funeral. And I said, well, you know, how would you like me to present him? How would you like, what stories would you like me to say? How would you like me to talk about him as, as a father or as a husband? Got done and you could literally hear the crickets chirping. Nothing. They had nothing to say about him. And so here you are trying to fill 20 minutes about a guy you never met that's not saved. What do you say? So every time I do a funeral, I always go back to that verse of where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he finishes it with, do you believe this? Now he said, it's a very poignant question to ask. Is do we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, that no one comes to the Father but by him? And as I was doing this funeral, um, this was years ago, and I don't know, I hope now that I would probably do things a little different. And I'm sitting out there and I'm looking at this family. And, you know, you start saying, okay, in your mind, the flesh says, don't, don't push the Jesus thing. Don't push the Jesus thing. Just get out of here alive. You know, and it was one of those things where as, as, as you're going and you're trying to present Christ and you find yourself maybe watering down things a little bit because you don't want to make an issue. And I'm sure maybe you run into this at work where it's like, okay, well, you know, let's not push stuff. Okay, you believe in God. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, you pray. Let's just leave it at that. But what God do you believe in? Who are you praying to? Those are questions that have to be asked. So to finish the story, you know, we talked about heaven, and we talked about hell in the message. And we talked about how Jesus was the only way to get to heaven. And, and I can't remember the guy's name for sure. We'll just call him Joe. And I said, I knew that Joe wasn't in heaven so I said, some of you will see Joe again. <laughs> um, now, I think they thought that some of you were going to see Joe again in a good place. And some of you are probably not going to see Joe again in a good place. And you stop and you think about that, and it really hit me. This person is probably in hell for eternity. Hell. That is horrible. All of a sudden, in that message, a guy that I never met, a guy that I knew nothing about, and my mindset was just get in and get out, all of a sudden my heart was so moved by this man's death that I started becoming emotional. Because you realize, this guy is in hell. How horrible is that? And then all of a sudden the message changed. And I probably gave him the greatest hellfire brimstone message ever. Because I thought, he's probably in hell. These people don't know Jesus either. And I thought, what are they going to do? They're going to get mad at me? They get mad at me. I don't know them. I have a responsibility, though, where Paul said, I'm not guilty, I will be guilty of the blood of no man. And from that time on, every time I've done a funeral since then, that was probably the first or second funeral I ever did, every time I've done a funeral, I've never, I try never to back away from the fact of it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Because 
What good are we doing as Christians if we start watering down the truth of the gospel? What good are we doing if we start making Jesus second tier? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, I pray for you. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying the Lord will get you through it. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know what? God is there and he's your sure foundation. Those are all true points. But there has to come a time and a place where you have to say, you know what? There's also this sin issue. And that sin issue is not taken care of by just some prayers and God and the Lord. Sin is taken care of by you believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And that's what Colossians is trying to tell us. Is it's all Jesus. He reconciles you. He redeems you. He qualifies you. He transfers you. He gives you the inheritance. He made the visible. He made the invisible. He's the head of the body. If you take Jesus out, what do you got? You got country clubs that meet on Sunday mornings to have fun. If you take Jesus out of the equation, you got a lot of people that just like to talk about God. That's Jesus. Once again, I go back to verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. It's all him. Paul wrote in the book of Corinthians, There is no other foundation than anyone can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The only foundation is Christ. Which takes us to our last point here. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Two words I want you to focus on in that last verse of 23. Grounded and steadfast. That word grounded literally means foundation. It's a word that they used to talk about laying the foundation of a house. Grounded. Your foundation is Christ. When Dawn and I moved into our house, we didn't have a lot of room uh, to store all of our junk. And so for what we tried to do is we were looking for these little outbuildings to put on. We found this little outbuilding. It was 12 by 12. And just to give it a perspective, this outbuilding cost about $200. So you know the quality that we were getting. So we got it. That's what we could afford. That's what we needed. And you know what? You just make it work. So we get this outbuilding, this 12 by 12. And uh, my father-in-law, Jerry, helped me get it and pick it up. And I just looked at this thing. And I'm thinking, this is going to be like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. The first five-mile-an-hour wind, this thing is going to end up in the neighbor's field. So, you know, Jerry had this idea. And we bought these big pieces of wood. You can tell I'm really manly. We bought these big pieces of wood. Screwed the house into it, but then we screwed these long pieces of rebarb down into the ground a couple feet. And so now that foundation is solid. That ain't going anywhere. That building is junk, but the foundation is solid. I'm telling you right now, some of your buildings and my building is junk, but the foundation of Christ is solid. And so, therefore, the foundation doesn't let that building move. That is a worthless building. But the foundation keeps it strong and solid. So when those storms and wind hits, the first couple times those big winds came, you're talking 40-mile-an-hour, 30-mile-an-hour gusts, I thought, kids, get away from the window. That thing's just going to fly. And you know what? It's solid because of the foundation. That word grounded means your foundation is solid. Well, that word steadfast this is an interesting word too. This actually refers to the inside of a building. You're grounded, but steadfast means that the framing is solid. See, this is the goal. You're grounded in Christ. He's your foundation. 
And as we've said out here numerous times before, that classic story of the wise man that built his house on the rock and the foolish man that built his house on the sand. We all know what happens. The guy that built his house on the sand, when the storms of life hit, his house fell apart. But we forget in that story, the same storm that knocked down the guy whose house was on the sand also hit the guy whose house was on the rock. See, sometimes we think as Christians, I have the foundation of Christ. No storm of life is going to hit me. Some of you right now are going through storms. But your foundation is Christ. So therefore, you are not shaken. You do not falter. But we want to be steadfast. I want the inside framing of the building to be true and solid. This is where we have responsibility to work on it. I can't lay a foundation. I can't do anything spiritually. It's Christ. But I can build off that foundation. I build off that foundation by making smart choices, by making spiritual choices, by seeking God, by trying to live a pure life, by staying strong in the Spirit. That's building off the foundation that has already been laid. And that's how I get a steadfast building. Solid framing. Now, you can choose how you want to build your spiritual house. You can use popsicle sticks, balsa wood, or you can go get great 2x4s, 2x6s. The stronger the wood, the better the house. Sometimes I see people have their little spiritual house made out of cards. Boy, Satan knows the only thing he has to do is just snap his fingers and that house is going to fall down. It takes time, it takes effort to build a solid, strong house off the foundation of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Book of Hebrews is also a great uh, complement to the book of uh, Colossians. Book of Colossians is all about Jesus and Jesus number one. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus being our sacrifice. Well, what you have here in Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to go ahead and start it here um, in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It says that by two immutable things, Immutable is just a 25-cent word that means unchangeable. If something is immutable, it does not change. So there's two unchangeable things which is impossible, number one, for God to lie. God can't lie. Now what's that verse mean? If God can't lie, that means when he promised me in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of those that love him that are called according to his purposes, that means when something happens in my life that I think is, okay, Lord, what are you doing? He says, I promise you it'd be good. I'll use it for good. That also means in the book of Psalms where God says the Lord is good and does good, he doesn't lie. He's going to take care of me. See, we have to trust that. Do we trust that God's going to take care of us? That's the first one. The next one, in verse 18, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Second one is God is a refuge for you. Now the problem is sometimes we don't use the refuge of Christ. The storms of life hit and you want to sit there and have a pity party rather than going to the refuge of Jesus. The storms of life hit and you want to sit there and worry, fear, and doubt rather than running to the refuge of Christ. Or you get hurt, not physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Someone said something, someone did something, and you are rightfully hurt. Instead of running to the refuge of Christ, you want to sit there and stew. Boy, Satan loves that. 
We have a refuge that we're supposed to run to. And look at this refuge, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, of which enters the presence behind the veil. God is our anchor that keeps us from getting tossed and turned through life. See, here's the beauty of an anchor, though. The anchor will keep you from floating away. Does that mean your boat never rocks? No, the boat will rock. But you know you're hooked to that anchor. That anchor is going to keep you from getting taken over in the storm. Some of you right now are going through a difficult time where your boat is being rocked left and right. Cling to the anchor of Christ. That anchor, when you hold on to that, never let go. That is what both sure and steadfast, which is going to get you through this storm that you're facing right now. Problem is, sometimes we like to pull the anchor up. This storm is rough. I'm pulling the anchor up, and I'm going to move my boat to a better location. Now, there's no better location than the one where God has you. Or sometimes we let go of the anchor. It's too much work. It's too much effort. Just let the storm take me. Now, hang on to that anchor. That anchor is there to keep you solid, as it says in verse 19, both sure and steadfast. How does that happen? Because Christ. We're grounded in Christ. We're steadfast in Christ. Why? Because He qualified us. He reconciled us. He redeemed us. He transferred us. He gave us the inheritance. He created it all. So it's all about Jesus. And this is the theme that you're going to hear again and again through the book of Colossians. It's all about Jesus. And whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're going through, I know that there's a foundation and there's an anchor that's going to get you through it without a shadow of a doubt. So, what do we do? Well, if you're going through a tough time, I tell you, we're here to pray for you. We're here to encourage you. What we're going to do is this, is uh, as Marv goes through the final song, um, after church is over, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to shake a few hands. There's a few people I want to talk to. But if you want to, you're more than welcome to come up here after church, pray. We'll have people to pray with you, to encourage you. We're here to do that. And we care. I can't stress that to you enough. We care. And if you're going through a difficult time and you feel your world is being rocked, know that there's a body of Christ that cares and wants to point you in the right direction. They care, and they want to do that. Marv, you want to come forward here for the final song? Two other things I wanted to share.